This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 8, Episode 17. This is Writing Excuses Microcasting! 900 seconds long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I just did 15 times 60. I hope I got it right. How do you mentally prepare to write? I find that doing something physical while I'm thinking about the story is very helpful. Okay. Um, like washing the dishes, going for a walk, um, and, and actively thinking about the story. Knowing uh-huh. that when I walk back in, I'm going to sit down and, and write. Th- that is successful for me, uh, and I often forget to do that. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm like, why can't I write? I uh, find that uh, reading what I wrote yesterday or last week or whenever the last time I wrote um, totally gets me in the mood to write more. Nothing makes me want to write more than writing, which is weird, but there you go. I, I'm like Mary. I usually do something else. Um, and because I'm so often writing in uh, short snippets, you know, by the time I've written 500 words, you know, that's a, that's a week's worth of comics. Um, uh, what I try to do is uh, have a deadline, like, you know, a, a deadline for all the writing to be done so that I can start drawing. And so I'll start with a, you know, do the dishes, go to the gym, whatever activity with the understanding that once I get back, okay, now I only have 90 minutes. I got to crank out a week's worth of strips so that Mm -hmm. I can start drawing. All right. A deadline. I I turn on music and uh, if I'm trying to get in the the mood and it's not happening, I go on a walk or I go work out. Um, How do you write stories that are important, meaning they have purpose beyond entertainment, Without being heavy-handed. Um, I just had to deal with this, actually, in a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and got some really good advice from David Anthony Durham, which mm-hmm. was to not worry about the big important thing. To pick a character story and tell that character story, but pick a character story that would allow me to illuminate the big important idea but not try to tell a story about the big important idea. Okay. So, for instance, mm-hmm. um, uh, I have a novel which is dealing with, um, with racism in the South mm-hmm. and, and the idea of passing. Uh, but yep. rather than telling a story about passing, right. I am telling a story about two people who are very much in love. Right. I think this is a great way to approach it. Um, and I, I've said this before. Heavy-handed is where you give answers to questions. Mm-hmm. Being important and meaningful is, where, is showing characters struggling with questions. Yes. And um, I think that you know you can approach having some answers as long as it's the characters discovering them. Um, but asking the questions is where you want to start. Mm-hmm. I tend to be, like any humorist, insidious and subtle. Mm. Um, the, the character story, the plot are not the big issue. The big issue gets bundled up into a joke in three panels, and I craft the joke in such a way that some of the people who are laughing don't even realize that they are laughing at the absurd position that they have held their whole lives. Okay. Um, And it is one of the things that humor does. It lowers your defense mechanisms against new ideas, 
and us we humorists we're we're sneaky bastards i saw recently a really really interesting documentary about uh paul simon's album graceland which Mm -hmm. is all of south american music it's his stuff combined with this south i mean south african music and a lot of people consider that album and its success to have a big part in uh the eventual overthrow of apartheid i mean not Mm -hmm. uh because and it, and it was not a message album. It mm-hmm. was not a we need to stop this album. It was, hey, look, these people are awesome. Listen to mm-hmm. their music. Look at them as people in a way you never have before. And so that incredibly positive message, rather than coming across um, telling you something or changing the way you think, it just kind of people naturally did that anyway because it was so fun to listen to. I seem to recall that the music analysis of that album you listen to it in order, it is an ascending sequence of key signatures from beginning to end. Mm. It is an ascent in terms of tone. Cool. All right, magic realism versus outright fantasy. What's the difference? How do you approach them differently? The definition that I've heard for magical realism, which I find most useful, is that it is the metaphor made manifest. Uh Uh, In other words, um, like fantasy... Things are things are fantastic because you are in a fantasy world. Yes. In magical realism, you are in this world, um, but there is some aspect of the world that is a metaphor. For instance, uh, in the movie like Water for Chocolate, mm-hmm. um, one of the characters um, is is very unhappy and is crying all the time, and those tears, instead of just saying, "Well, she's unhappy and she's crying all the time," you know. They, they manifest the metaphor of her tears uh, into this cake batter, which then makes everyone weep. It becomes larger than life. It becomes fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is still, it's, it's still a metaphor for that original thing. And it's just manifesting it in a, a okay. fantastic Tears in way. the batter was also an important uh, plot point in Shaolin soccer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, One of the things that I love about uh, South American magic realism, specifically, and and this is obviously not across the board, but I love stories such as A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings Mm -hmm. that present something fantastical and remove, ironically, the sense of wonder from it. Yes. You know, it's about an angel, but it's not a majestic angel. It's not a wondrous angel. It's just a very old man with enormous wings, and he lives out in the backyard with the chickens. And... uh, you know, that's just a, a way that that culture approaches magic that makes it feel very real without feeling fantastical. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, by the end, you know, that kind of sense of wonder comes back. But that's what I love about it. All right. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, so, do you have any recommendations or techniques for doing a beta read for an author? This is someone apparently who is reading... Maybe not be an author themselves, might be, but they're reading someone else's work, and how can you be a better beta reader? Well, beta I, read as opposed to alpha read. Yes. That's an yeah. important yes. distinction. Yes. See, mm-hmm. what, the, what I tell my beta readers is 
the form of this story is already the way I like it. I've done the first draft. I've done my major revisions. I'm not going to be going through and cutting out characters. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be doing any massive reordering of scenes or plots. At this point, I don't want you to tell me that stuff. Tell me other stuff. I'm going to disagree a little bit right there. The beta readers for, um, for The Return of the Jedi convinced um, Lucas to let the Millennium Falcon not blow up. That level of that beta readers, if the whole point of beta readers for me is to read it as a reader, not a writer. Alpha yeah. readers are writers who read it. Oh, beta, no, not for me. Well, well writers, editors, <laughs> uh, my alphas are my editor, my agent, uh, yeah. and my writing group. What we're seeing is that all of us use yeah. beta readers differently. We might want to yeah. actually table this and do one on alpha and beta readers and how okay. to use them. Well, I think we've done like two episodes okay, on that. Well, yeah. well, let me, because mm -hmm. um, the way I use alpha readers mm -hmm. um, is. I have alpha people readers. For me, alpha readers are read people who are reading it raw. Uh huh. Um, okay. You know, and I have people who are reading two chapters behind where I'm writing, and I just want to know how the story is playing. Okay. That's all I want to know. Those are your alpha readers. Those are my alpha mm -hmm. readers. After I've done that, because I have been making shifts, then I will mm -hmm. go ahead and give it to beta readers who get it all in one chunk. Mm -hmm. And I want, again, mostly to know how the story is playing to make sure that I haven't messed anything up. Okay. Uh, and that's before I send it to my editors and agents. They don't get it until I've run it through two, two passes. Um, but I, with each of those, I think what I'm telling them is uh, I use the, the wise reader ideas mm -hmm. that I want to know things that bore them, things that confuse them. Right. And um, things that they don't understand. Okay. Or uh, wait, things bore them, confuse them, and uh, things that they don't believe, and then also things that they think are cool, so I don't accidentally fix them. Okay. Mostly, I want them to flag this their pro where they run into problems, but I don't want them to tell me how to fix them. One of my favorite things to do as a beta reader, and uh, and I, the relationship I have with the authors for whom I beta read, uh, I will offer in some cases. Uh, fixes, but the sorts of fixes I'm offering are places where I'll say, ooh, this scene, this was really, really cool, and I like what's happening, but your wording needs to punch this up. Yeah, I wouldn't let you read my stuff. <laughs> yeah, and that's... <laughs> See, yeah, um, and again, the definition for me, alphas are people who are industry insiders. Betas are, give me the public's view. I, I oh, want yeah. to know just what a common reader has to say about this. I'm looking for um, reader reaction, like a test group. Yeah. My beta readers are my focus group. Yeah, for me, it's I, I definitely do not. I don't want my industry insiders to read it until mm -hmm. after. So the after answer. The focus group. So you the use the focus group question, first, and you use the industry insider second. Yeah. So mm -hmm. yeah. the answer. The answer to this question is, uh, wow, you're ask, ask, find out from the person what yeah. they want. Yes. Yeah. Find out from your author. Yep. All right. Actually, uh, let me in the liner notes. I have one of my beta, my alpha readers did a really good blog post on uh, alpha okay. reading. All right, this one's going to be kind of an ob obvious answer for us, but the fact that people are asking it, let's just go ahead with it. Would it be possible to do several stories, novellas, and short stories in a serialized way where the setting and some characters are the same? Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I actually, it's a pretty obvious one to us, but it's been done enough that you can, I suggest you pick up something like Foundation, which is done that way. Mm -hmm. Orson um, Scott Card's Folk of the Fringe. Uh-huh. Um, Martian Chronicles. Yeah, Martian Chronicles is another great. Or any kind of shared world, antho world mm -hmm. anthologies that are out there where people yeah. are kind of doing this together. Uh, Sherry Priest's Clockwork Century. These are all individual things. Yeah. All right, here's a question. 
Um, I don't know what, what our answer to this one is. Why do publishers say they want cross-genre books, but continue to publish mostly strict genre books? I think you're just not reading the right books. Um, I, I think, don't know. yeah, I, I, th I, I, I see actually if a lot of cross-genre stuff. Yeah. Not that anything's leaping to mind, obviously, because well, I mean, now that I'm called upon to name them, I can't. Well, th that's because I think one of the things that happens is that a lot of times something starts off as cross-genre, like, you know, paranormal romance, and mm -hmm. then people like it so much that it becomes its it own becomes thing. It becomes mainstream, and we yeah, don't let consider me, it Let me rephrase the question. Anymore. Why do publishers want X, but what I see from publishers is so often just Y? And so, the answer is because publishers are really looking for ways to experiment and do new things, but they can't afford to experiment all the time, and so a lot of what they what they ship is stuff that they know sells. Well, and well, a lot and of what also, gets picked up and publicized is the, and, this familiar. Well, and the other thing is the, the time delay. I mean, publishers can say, I want this, but it's going to be at least two years before you see that thing on the shelf. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, here's a question that I'll just go ahead and answer. Their question is, picture books and books for beginning readers... Um, and they would like us to do a podcast on this. Obviously, they posted this thing. The trick is, since none of us have done that, um, we are not a good authority for you on picture books and what we call chapter books. Mm -hmm. um, the and speaking as authority would be wrong for us. Yeah. Now, there might be a time when we can get a guest on that we can interview about it. Um, and we will try to watch out for that for you. But I'm not, you know... Yeah. We have a specific, specific expertise, and we yeah. should t stick I, to it. I asked my agent that question and said, we get asked about this all the time, and I don't know what to tell them. Where can I send people? And she said, SCBWI is okay. the go-to source for learning about that branch of the publishing industry. What does that stand I for? I don't remember. SCBWI. Um, yeah. Oh, Society of Children's Book. Writers and Illustrators. Yeah. 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 Okay. There you go. Um, the... This is going to be a good one, I think, for us to do an entire podcast on. But I want to ask you, Mary. They say how to give a good reading out loud in front of people. You have a fantastic presentation for that. Could I... we do an entire podcast on that, do you think? <laughs> Very easily. Okay. Yes. Okay, next question. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of me talking, though. Okay. How do you write when you're sick? Does your physical health matter when writing? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I write very slowly when I'm sick. Um, there are occasions when I find that I'm actually more focused because I have to work so hard at it that it's, I don't have room for all of the things that are normally distracting yeah. me, but, um, I definitely write differently. Sometimes mm -hmm. I write badly. Um, I find that when I'm, when I'm physically sick, it is really hard to draw, uh, because mm -hmm. that is a, that is a that much more sense. physically involving yeah. activity. Um, and, and so often when I am sick, all I do is write. And the, the sort of writing I do never has wordsmithing in it. It's just outline, throw ideas on the page, and hope that tomorrow Smart Howard is back and can turn these into some scripts that he can draw on. Depending on what kind of illness it is, you know, I just write slowly. If it's a cold, which is like the thing I hate more than anything else in the world, I just don't write at all because it makes me too miserable. What is the uh, primary thing you've learned from reading literary fiction that has informed your genre fiction writing? I love that question. I would say, for me, um, what literary fiction excels at is 
a sense of poetry to language mm -hmm. and yep. learning to hear language in, um, writing in my head as I read it out loud or speak it really helps me with the, the idea of poetry and language. Now, I'm not, usually, I'm not usually shooting for that. I'm usually shooting for what we've talked about is window pane prose. But there is, there is a majesty to really well-written literary fic of that style that, that's pretty cool. I think the other thing for me is that, um, that it reminds me that ambiguity is okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, literary fiction is very good at ambiguity mm -hmm. and endings that are not endings in the classical sense and traditional sense. You can, it can really help you break tropes. The problem is literary fiction has become its own trope. And so it's, why it's very different from what we do. A lot of them have these, their own tropes that they're not breaking out of anymore, which is something that yeah. the literary fiction yeah. crowd talks about and as it, a, a, a complaint. Yeah. The thing literary fiction always reminds me of is uh, the scope of problems does not have to be big. Mm. Yes. You know, genre yeah. fiction, we have a tendency toward the fate of the world is at peril. Yes. Yeah. And literary fiction doesn't. You know, you can have an entire book about my wife doesn't love me anymore, and that can fill 500 pages, and that's acceptable in that market. And Yeah. And we, so, focus, we focus a lot on what is a cool story that hasn't been told yet, and literary fiction is often... Uh, what is a cool tool I can use for telling this story that's been told, you know? How can mm -hmm. I make you see this story in a different way? How can way? I make you see yeah. this story I in think, a different way? Yeah. How can I... Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm looking through the questions, looking for one that would be a good um, writing prompt. And... Oh. I know which one oh. you're going for. Go ahead, Mary. Is it the nuclear kittens? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I saw kitten punk. Is oh, that... kitten punk. Yes, yes. Kitten, kitten punk. punk. And I saw that and thought, okay, kitten punk. Kitten punk. Your writing prompt is kitten punk. This has been writing excuses. You're, out of You're not going to give me anything besides kitten punk. No. Do you need more? Well, no, steampunk is a world powered by steam, so kitten punk naturally is a world where you shovel kittens into the boiler to make the airships go. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> now go right. <laughs> if you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 